Many of you have pondered the age-old question, what do vaccine development, digital marketing, lunch, and patient engagement have to do with each other? Today, we get the answer. I'm your host, Alex Maersperger, and in season three of the Health Pulse podcast and YouTube series, we celebrate leaders changing healthcare and life sciences for the better. Today, we get to welcome and celebrate Dr. Tobias Cruz, founder and CEO of Trials24 and Pharma Lunch. Welcome, Tobias. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Were you, so you've, you've got a few uh, entrepreneurial ventures under your belt now. Were you born an entrepreneur or is that something that sort of appeared during the, your journey? Yeah, actually, I was not at all born an entrepreneur. You know, I, and if you will, I have even like the most anti-entrepreneurial background that you can imagine. So just let me, let me explain. So about me, like I'm born and raised in Hamburg, Germany, and I was born into a family with a steady government jobs. So my mom was a teacher, you know, my dad was also working for the government. And in Germany, these jobs are like kind of the most risk averse jobs that you can actually have. So. You know, it gives a lot of security, so that's the good part, of course, but it also does not really foster an entrepreneurial mindset in the kids born into these kind of families. And on top of that, I also didn't have any friends doing entrepreneurial stuff, you know, so none of my circle of friends were were entrepreneurs. Um, so when I decided to found Trice24, my, my grandma, you know, she's 100 years old now, and I absolutely love her. But her first reaction was, Toby, how will you earn money? And my dad also went on top of that and came and he was like, you will have a gap in your retirement later, you know? So, so that was how I started my entrepreneurial journey. And, um, so I had no backing of my family, no friends that I knew or something like this. And on top of that, I even decided to bootstrap my company a hundred percent with my own money, with the little money that I have saved after my PhD, which was like 12 and a half thousand euros. And that's kind of the minimum that you need in Germany to found a, a German GmbH uh, company. Were these your first entrepreneurial ventures? Yeah, actually, um, Trice24 came first and it's kind of a journey how that even started because it's not that um, logical to found a service company within the pharma industry with kind of no real background experience. I studied molecular biotechnology at the Technical University in Munich, and I did my PhD there. So I was part of the university research team that developed a vaccine against Helicobacter pylori, or in short, H. pylori. And I was an absolute scientist there, right? So I had a protein biochemistry background. I was developing production processes for vaccines in this term, uh, in this case, it were proteins. And my project that I was part of got a big grant from the German government. So there was around 4 million euros. And that's a lot for German university. So always when you hear German numbers, you can almost 10 exit and then you have what it would have been like in the US probably. So this project went very well. And we raised a series A in 2014, which um, had 13 million in funding. So again, thinking of like something like 100 million euros probably in the US. And Found, and, and when we founded the company Imavax and we spun, spun it out of the university and a colleague and I, as I said, were um, responsible for the production of the vaccine. And it was quite challenging, but we managed this. And then after that, of course, the clinical trials started. So and here's where the journey then really started with Trials24. Because one day, um, so our company 
was everything was dependent on this one clinical trial, right? We had one lead candidate. Everything was riding on this one clinical trial. And then one day the ClinOps team, you know, I, I still remember this sitting in our open space office and the head of the clinic, ClinOps team looked up, you know, and she was saying like, we need to cancel our first study. Like we don't get the H. pylori positive patients. Now, here's an important piece of information to know like what's why this is so surprising. So Helicobacter pylori has a crazy epidemiology. 50% of the people worldwide have it. And even in industrial nation, you have um, 20 to 30% of the people having it. So how on earth, with every fourth people person running around outside, how on earth could we have a patient recruitment problem? No one saw that coming. And as I said, like we were a small startup, small company, like 15 people, give or take. So everybody who had a suggestion was actually welcome to bring this one forward, right? And um, yeah, I looked at what we were doing in terms of patient recruitment, like coming from the sidelines. I was a scientist, had no idea of patient recruitment or anything like this. And um, I looked at what we were doing and it was all print media, making flyers, running ads in physically printed newspapers. So very, very old and classical ways. So I asked... Like, why don't we do this digital? Like, why don't we go to Facebook, Instagram, and Google? And that was in 2015. So these channels already existed for quite a while, right? And now one important point about me to know is, why did I have this suggestion? And the reason was that throughout my life, I always had some kind of side hustles, right? I was, when I was a student, I um, was a multi-year member of Toastmasters. Maybe in the US, you pr probably know it. Um, awesome. Toastmasters is a speaker's organization where you learn public speaking. In Germany, it's not that well known, but I loved it. Like I was there for three to four years. And then also my next side hustle started because my club here in Munich, the Munich Business Speakers, shout out to them, um, needed a new website, right? And um, then I started building websites. And my latest side hustle back then now, when we had the patient recruitment problem, was online marketing. I was absolutely fascinated with online marketing. I had no idea what I would ever use it for. It was, had no practical application to my biotech st uh, studies, um, but I just did it. And now here comes this patient recruitment problem, right? And I realized patient recruitment is also just marketing, but it's in a highly regulated industry, you know? So... Everybody calls it a bit different, like they call it awareness campaigns or, but whatever they call it, but in the core, it's still marketing. So you have an offer with your clinical trial and you try to get patients interested and participate in this clinical trial. So at the time, nobody was doing it in, actually in Germany. So in 2015, we um, had, I think, three companies that were doing it. They were all doing it a bit differently. And in the US, which is usually five to 10 years ahead of the German market, um, we had also just a few service providers that were doing it. And I really didn't understand that because in the literature, it says 50 to 80% of clinical trials have a huge problem with patient recruitment. So I didn't understand like why are there are so few service providers in this space. And um, like an MBA student would probably look at this and think like, whoa, there's like all this money is lying on the streets, right? But a good friend of mine, and, and, I, and I really love this, um, this, he always says like, you never know if it's a green meadow or if it's a graveyard, right? Because all the failed experiments from companies that tried and died, you just cannot see them. And later I also understood that it's just a highly regulated industry. So in these type of industries, 
Nobody wants to be first. No one knows how these channels work in digital marketing, data protection, information security. You have a lot of compliance issues with um, pharma companies talking directly to patients. Um, so they shy away from it. And no one, and that on top of this, no one believed even this approach would work. So it sounds like those side projects and the, the side hustles, as you say, um, have worked out for you at different times throughout your career. What's a, a side project you're working on now? Um, actually, a side project I'm working on now is uh, non-specifically because Trials24 is um, my my side project, my main job and my hobby all in one. So, <laughs> yeah, but but you're absolutely right. So, Tobias, you were on the science side as a protein biochemist developing the vaccines and then jumped into the patient recruitment side of clinical trials. This is seemingly far from that science side and your roots. How do you blend those two together? And has that helped you in creating the company? Yeah, absolutely. So I can say if I learned one thing as a PhD is this, like I can build a hypothesis and then design and conduct the experiments to prove the point and then, of course, communicate this as well. So when we had the comp uh, in the company in the at Imavax, when we had the problem of patient recruitment, um, what I then did is like I built a survey for patients um, that just showed the proof of concept. So we asked the patients what we needed to know of them. Like, do you have H. pylori? Um, do you want to participate in the study? And so on. And the results were so overwhelming, right? We had two and a half thousand patients responding in five days, so much more than we needed in like for our trial. And that showed it was clearly working. And the fun part of this was even the, the data that we got out of the surveys completely matched the latest peer-reviewed publication on the epidemiology of H. pylori. So I saw that this approach would work and we just had like one issue. So when you are at the sponsor, you are not allowed to do much of the things internally because you are not allowed to talk to patients and you are not allowed to like try to get them into the trial because Many trials are run in a double-blind fashion. So doctors and patients don't know if they got the medication or not. And they also don't want sponsors then to talk to the patients to not influence the results of the trial. So when, when I was still at the old company, I thought like, of course, we can outsource this process, right? So, but the issue was there were no companies that we can outsource this to. So we like took a marketing agency here, took a call center there, and I contributed a lot, of course, to this, but um, in the they had no pharma background and so on. So it was really hard to explain them um, all the compliance and quality management and ethical approvals processes. So at the end of the day, the cool part was um, this whole patient recruitment, digital patient recruitment that I set up in the old company um, saved the clinical trial, right? Patients came in, they were way more qualified with our online pre-screeners. And we closed recruitment one month ahead of time. And that was like way, like nobody who hears of closing um, clinical trials before the timeline that they actually planned. And on top of that, we saved over half a million in our budget. And it still took me after that experience, it still took me almost half a year to really say, hey, maybe I should found a company. One problem that's popping up as a, a trend is diversity in clinical trials. It's starting to get a lot of attention. We certainly have to develop and know that drugs work for a whole range of people and backgrounds. How is the work that you're doing creating diversity in clinical trials? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, the diversity in clinical trials is especially a big topic in the US. I would say in Europe, it's a little bit less of a hot topic, but our work definitely contributes to bringing in diversity because with the digital recruitment, you have so much more opportunities to 
target specific age groups, specific ethnicities, and reaching just more patients than, than you would only have at a certain site. So let's consider you're opening a lot of clinical trial sites in, in big cities, right? Let's say New York. And you open this in a certain part of the city where some groups are underrepresented. The chances that these groups are at this specific clinical trial site are pretty low. But if you just bring the awareness campaigns to the other parts of the city, you know, somebody could just drive over there and just take part in this clinical trial. So that's not an issue at all. And with digital patient recruitment, you can enable these types of bringing in more diverse um, populations to the clinical trial sites. So if you weigh, it's much, much more inclusive. And the hot topic in the industry here is like the decentralization of clinical trials to really bring in patients from everywhere. Given what you've shared already and knowing how much disruption and transformation exists across both the healthcare delivery side and the life science side, what do you think the future of patient engagement and patient recruitment is going to look like? What should we be anticipating? Yeah, so I think you should anticipate a lot of uh, innovation ahead. And what I what I think is that in B2B, or if you want to say like B2P, so B2 patient, in pharma, is the, the issue is that it's probably behind digitalization by 10 to 15 years um, over the normal business to consumer markets. So I would give you three statements to this. So one very contrarian take and two normal takes, I would say. So my contrarian sta uh, statement is, I don't think that AI and automation will be a big part here in the next 10 to 15 years. And I will give you my example for this. So if I look at Apple's autocorrection on the iPhone, you know, in Germany, it just doesn't work probably. It corrects happy birthday every single time that you want to type it in German, right? And if I see at this type of artificial intelligence, I'm very doubtful that all the chatbots and everything that is promised in the healthcare space will solve these very complex patient situations and patient problems um, that when they would rather talk to a human. Now, that doesn't mean that probably be, um, after this um, time horizon that will play a big part. I just don't see it happen too early. But what I do see is point number two and three. So digitalization is the big part in uh, will play a big part in um, patient recruitment and patient engagement in pharma in general. So one example is that we also developed an um, internationally scalable patient um, CRM solution for our workflows. And we manage this, the sponsor sees everything pseudonymously and sites can work with the patients. And just bringing these type of digitalizations into the space is very helpful because Think about it. In Germany, like lots of hospitals or um, doctors' offices are still using paper records, not electronic paper records, right? So if you come from this point of view, digitalization will be a huge part. And the other thing that I think will play a major part in the next 10 to 15 years is the focus on the patient itself. So the, the word in the industry for this is patient centricity. And patients will play a much, much bigger role in the future. So the FDA just gave out guidelines where they um, encourage and actually want so-called patient-focused drug development, and they want patient engagement and medical device development, right? So the regulators are asking pharma companies to actually talk to your patients before you develop any drugs or any medical devices. Now, that sounds a bit crazy because why wouldn't they talk to the patients? But as I said before, it's a highly regulated industry and talking to the patients is more a compliance matter. So it's not that easy. And 
this will, but it will be a much bigger, it will play a much bigger role that um, pharma companies, medical device companies will talk to the patients and get them into the, um, into the loop in terms of developing their drugs and medical devices. Tobias, there's so much negativity as well in the news. And certainly there's, you talked about some of the challenges and problems that exist all throughout the healthcare and life science space. On the opposite end of that spectrum, the optimism for the future is one thing that we try to leave guests with. What are you optimistic about or what's something that makes you optimistic about the future? I'm absolutely totally optimistic with the entire, for example, what we saw in the corona vaccine development. So I know that it's, of course, a controversial topic, but what many people that don't come from the industry might not know of is that the regulator, the regulatory um, side of it behind the all these clinical trials, all the drug development, is it's so regulated and slow. And that pharma companies, regulators all came together, developed the vaccine within one year. It's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely unthinkable before this pandemic. And I think out of this collaboration, out of this speed improvement in terms of developing drugs, there will be a lot of benefits for patients coming with faster drug development in general in the future. Dr. Cruz. So appreciative of your time. We know that there's infinite demands on your time. We're so glad that you could spend a little bit of it with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for listeners and viewers, again, we're so appreciative of you joining in. We know there's infinite demands on your time. We know there's so many challenges in the world. We hope that wherever you are, you get the chance to uh, see the good or be the good around you. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Give us questions, comments um, here in the comments on YouTube or at our email address, thehealthpulsepodcast at sas.com. Thank you.